my uh, sister and I were misbehaving, there's kind of this uh, common go-to thing that uh, would be almost, I don't know if you want to call it a threat of punishment or like, hey, you don't want this to happen, do you? Uh, and the question we were asked was, uh, do you need to have sand pounded up your butt? Which probably sounds really <laughs> weird, but this was asked all the time. And when you think about it, I was thinking about it this week, and I'm like, who actually ever came up with that? And how would that even like be possible? How could you accomplish that sort of task? And uh, I don't think you'd see it in you know a conventional list of discipline methods right along with, we have spanking or washing your mouth out, mouth out with soap, which happened to me once. Uh, timeouts, grounding, getting privileges taken away, more chores, going to your room, and lastly, sand pounded up your butt. I don't, I don't know. I like Googled the reference because I was like, is this like something you know, I shouldn't say? I can't. I couldn't figure out where that would even come from. I don't know where, you know, how, how that was made up. But you know, take a moment to reflect on the, this question: How was discipline handled in your home growing up? How was discipline handled in your home growing up? How did your parents discipline you when you misbehave, what was kind of their go-to method for disciplining you? You know, we mentioned it, it could be spanking or timeouts or you're getting more chores, you're getting this privilege taken away. And what was your, their kind of go-to method for disciplining you? And maybe even deeper, what, what was their attitude? Could you sense their attitude or what was their feeling in it? Was there, uh, were you feeling loved or were you feeling like you're a problem or like they're angry at you? Or you're kind of in the way, or you just you, know, you can't ever get things together, or do you really feel uh, that they're being patient or gentle? And so, what was that like for you? And just have that in mind as we move through this passage, because um, this second-to-last sermon, as we're talking about the message, uh, you're responsible for your actions. And we've been going with these four little images with something on them are the core of what this uh, sermon series has been about. So you're safe with me was learning to create a foundation of grace in the relationship. And your love no matter what was about how do we show love and connect with people even when they're uh, doing things that make them difficult to love. How can we have affection and empathy and care about them even while they're difficult to love? And the third message, you're called and capable, is about communicating belief in the person through uh, affirmation uh, even when they're doing what they're, uh, we wish they weren't doing. And today, we're talking about you're responsible for your actions. And so this is about correction, which is super important for us both to receive and to give. In fact, I've said it before that I think correction is one of our greatest responsibilities as Christians to do with each other, and mostly with each other, sometimes with people outside of the church community. It's one of our greatest responsibilities, and yet is one we often neglect or fail at or do very poorly and some of us don't do it at all. Some of us do it way too much, and we do it poorly. It's one of the key responsibilities we're given. We can see lots of times when we're told uh, we're supposed to teach and admonish one another. Admonishing is warning, bringing people back. Or the passage Katie read, the Word of God, what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to correct us and instruct us and bring us up to be mature uh, people of God. And yet we often uh, neglect or do this poorly. As we've done every week, uh, for each of these messages, I want you to have someone in mind um, throughout this sermon. So, and the question for how to bring that person to mind is, which, in which of your relationships do you desire to have more connection? In which of your relationships do you desire to have more connection? And you can write it down on your bulletin or just have it in mind. Which of your relationships do you desire to have more connection in? And perhaps that's a relationship where you've 
It's just been difficult. It's like, man, I just feel really disconnected from this person. Perhaps they've wronged you. Perhaps they've hurt you. Perhaps they don't listen to you. Perhaps they disrespect you. Perhaps they just don't treat you right or they don't care for you very well. And this is probably a big reason why you feel disconnected from them because of how they've treated you. Whether they're not listening or they're just um, doing things that, that are hurtful, you maybe feel frustrated or hurt or angry or offended or uncared for or disrespected or betrayed or abandoned. Whatever it is, their actions uh, are making it difficult for you. They're making this relationship difficult for you. And we each already have a default way that we react to and think about and respond to people's actions, their you know, wrong actions, when they're doing something that's hurtful or wrong. Uh, it was programmed into you throughout your life in how you saw your parents or other significant people in your life dealing with people's wrong behavior, whether it's other kids or whether it's other adults, somebody, their coworker at work, or they're talking about you know, this, this neighbor. Like you have it programmed into of how you're going to respond to people's wrong behavior. This becomes our default way to responding to this, the person you're thinking, you're like, I want more connection with them. Your default way of responding to them is what you saw growing up, either from your parents or significant relationships. And the problem is, is that you are like me. You experienced a lot of unhealthy and unhelpful responses to uh, your bad behavior or wrong actions. Uh, I've you probably are like me, you've experienced a lot of unhealthy and unhelpful ways to communicate you are responsible to, for your actions. And this default, this will remain our default way of responding to people's uh, behavior that we don't like until we see something else modeled for us, until we experience and see something else modeled for us. And because in order to give healthy correction, we need to receive healthy correction. And the person who gives the healthiest correction, the best correction, the most helpful, is God. But here we encounter another problem, because whenever we're thinking about God, uh, we put, assume he corrects us and disciplines us in the same way that our parents or other significant people in our life corrected and disciplined us. And so we have to work to have a, a true and correct view uh, of how God actually deals with our misbehavior, rather than saying, oh, it must be like you know my parents, or it must be like this other significant person. Or we might think, I really don't like how these people correcting me in my life. God must be the opposite way of that. And so we kind of have either a mirror of God's a mirror of those people in our life, or he's like the inverse of those people in our life. And the reality is parents are supposed to be a reflection of God to us, but sin gets in the way of that. No matter how good of a parent you had, uh, they still had times when it was like, that isn't a full reflection of what God is like. And, but you may be blessed to be like, you know, it wasn't, it's actually not very far off from what God is like. And that's just grace to you that God would allow you to be like, oh, yeah, God's like my parents, but better. You know, instead of like, God's very different from my parents because uh, that's how God treats us. And so in order to recalibrate the way we give correction to people, we need to see and experience how God corrects us. And we're basically going to look at one passage, Hebrews 12, 3 through 11, shows us how God approaches correction and discipline with us. And this passage makes two main points about discipline. One is that God corrects us as a perfect father. God corrects as a perfect father. Secondly, God corrects for our good. God corrects as a perfect father. God corrects for our good. So we're just going to look at those two points and how this passage makes it. It tells us both the who and the why of correction. The who is a perfect father. The why is for our good. And so first, God disciplines and corrects as a perfect father. 
And in saying that, we need to consider, okay, well, what other ways might we assume God corrects? Instead of God correcting as a perfect father, maybe we assume God corrects as a judge. Maybe we think God corrects as a drill sergeant. Maybe we think God corrects as our basketball coach did. Or we think God corrects us as our parents did. We may think that God corrects us as our strict teacher or principal did. We might think God corrects us as a parole officer. And we all have this picture in our minds of what God is like in our head and in our heart. And the question is, is that picture what God is really like? And I believe most of discipleship and Christian growth is basically learning more and more what God is truly like and almost getting reparented. It was like we all were uh, parented in, you know, by the world and in ways we get, that we get called out of the world and now we're learning this is what God's really like. I'm not parented anymore like that. This is God showing me what he's truly like. And one of the times that your picture of God is most clearly revealed is when you have sinned, when you've disobeyed, when you've messed up for the hundredth time, when you fail at doing what you're supposed to do, when you feel like I've let him down again. And when things are going well, we might walk around saying, I believe God is gracious, I believe God's loving, I believe he's patient, I believe he's gentle and good. But then when we sin, all of a sudden you can see our reaction. Do I have to hide from God? Do I have to get myself you know, put back together before I can come to God? Is he super mad at me? Am I in the doghouse? Is he just distanced from me? In those moments when we've sinned, all of a sudden our real picture of God uh, comes out. Not The one that's not just in our heads, our head knowledge that we would use on a theology exam, but the one that's actually the image of God we're holding in our hearts, the one that, wow, this is what God is like when I mess up. And when we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, we're given a true picture of God. And this passage is written to people encouraging them. They're in the, a kind of a difficult stretch in the race of faith. If you, you know, maybe there's a time in the race of faith where it's like, this is pretty flat or it's downhill. They're in a time when it's uphill and it's very difficult. They're kind of getting beat up. They're suffering and they would be uh, tempted to just give up. But the author, to encourage them, asks, have you forgotten an exhortation from the Old Testament book of Proverbs that addresses them as sons and daughters? So in Hebrews 12, 5b, he quotes the book of Proverbs. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And these are two opposite extremes of responding to God's discipline. On the one hand, it's taking God's discipline so lightly that we kind of shrug it off. We don't learn from it. We don't submit to it. And on the other hand, it's being so weighed down by it that we grow weary or we lose heart. We want to give up. They're like two opposite extremes. One is not taking it lightly enough, and the other is just feeling burdened by it. And verse 6 gives the reason that we should not regard discipline lightly or be weary. It says, For or because the Lord's discipline, the one he loves, sorry, let me start that again. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the basic point is this. Don't. Don't make light of God's discipline or become weighed down by it because God disciplines his children whom he loves. And then verses 7 and 8 make the point even clearer. It says, when God disciplines us, he's treating us as his children because there's no child whom a father doesn't discipline. In fact, if God wasn't disciplining us, he says, then we wouldn't truly be children of God. God's discipline is proof that we actually are his children, not proof that we aren't. God's discipline is proof that he really does love us, not proof that he doesn't love us. And when we forget this, 
we will take his discipline lightly or we will become weary of it. It will either be a bother to us or a burden to us. Because the only reason we're receiving discipline from God is because we really are his children whom he really does love. So we ought to ask, okay, well, how does God discipline us? By what means does he discipline us? Because it's not like, you know, he's showing up in your bedroom or you know, whatever, being like, hey, you didn't pick up your clothes again. Or, you know, God's not like physically doing that in your, in your life. And the assumption in this passage is that God disciplines us by means of trials, hardships, difficulties, and suffering in our lives. And when we think about this, it's important to remember what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20. I mean, you can go back and listen to our series on Joseph, but he just has a tremendous amount of suffering and hardship and challenges in his life brought against him by his own brothers who sold him into slavery. You know, they human trafficked him and they hated him, they were jealous of him, they sold him into slavery. And then it just, you know, he just has thing after thing that goes wrong. But he says to his brothers at the end of Genesis uh, chapter 50, verse 20, he says, You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And the truth is that God is powerful enough to use the bad in your life for good. And that's super important for us to remember at all times, that even when people have bad or evil intentions, God can have an intention behind that for our good. God is powerful enough to use the bad in your life for good. And this guards us from thinking that the bad in our life is a sign that God's not really lived with us, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't care about us, that uh, he just has kind of taken his eye off the ball. He's not paying attention to us. And in verse 9, the author makes a, a how much more argument. These are very common in scripture. So he says, If we submitted to and respected the discipline of our earthly fathers, how much more are we submit to and respect the discipline of our heavenly father? And verse 10 says, you know, your heavenly fathers, he's like, kind of says, you know, they did their best and we respected them and submitted to that discipline. But, you know, nobody's perfect. Everyone's imperfect and we still submitted to our parents. Um, maybe you think, you know, I didn't submit very well to my parents, but, you know, in a way we all submitted at times to our parents. And the truth is that God is always at his best. Our earthly parents, they do their best, but God is always at his best. God disciplines us as a perfect father. But then we may ask, okay, what does it mean that God is a perfect father? What would a perfect father look like? What would his discipline, his correction look like? And we have to consider, okay, what's his character? What's his attitude towards us when he is disciplining us? Because this is very important because the default way we view God is what our parents were like, especially our fathers. So if you think about, this is what my father was like. And you might even think, I didn't have a father in my life. That also contributes to your image of God. Kind of distant, abandoned, not there for you, not there to help. But you also may have other images of God based on what your father was like. And we need to let God tell us what he is like. God corrects us perfectly as a perfect father. In this series, I'm just going to use the three messages we use in this series to look at. Okay, we've already shown that... God speaks these three messages to us. And so by the time we get to you're responsible for your actions and he's correcting us, what is God communicated to us? And God tells us, you are safe with me because our relationship with him is totally based on grace, undeserved, unearned favor. He favors us. You know, it's like, come, you get the word favorite from that. It's like, 
you're, you're like God's favorite. I mean, all his children are like his favorite, but like God treats us as his favorite. His favor is upon us because of grace, undeserved, unearned. Secondly, God communicates the message. You're loved no matter what. He can empathize with our situation. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be us. And he has affection for us, even when we are hard to love. Thirdly, God tells us, you're called and capable, which means he sees us as his workmanship, built in his image, being recreated in the image of Christ, and he can see the good even when we're doing bad things. He can say to us, you are awesomely and wonderfully made, because he made us. He knows how we were made. And these all are uh, you are messages, and that you are messages communicate and identity. And maybe you can think about what are some of the you are messages I received uh, growing up or that I'm believing now? What is kind of like the script you run in your head over and over again of, you know, I'm unworthy. I'm not worth anything. You know, I'm just kind of a pile of junk. I can't get anything right. What are those messages that you repeat in your head? And the message these three, the identity these three communicate to us is you, we can say to ourselves, I am safe. I am loved no matter what. I am called and capable. And we receive this from God before we're corrected. And you can see, even in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they are first rescued from Egypt, given grace. God does all these things for them. And then he says, okay, now I want to give you some instructions. I want to give you this covenant, these Ten Commandments. Like, look what I've done for you. I brought you into a relationship with me. And now this is what it looks like to be part of my family, is that we're going to live this way. And he, so grace always precedes uh, instruction. And these identities are true of us no matter what we do. And then we can also consider passages like Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 through 20, 22 through 23, where the fruit of the Spirit are being described and, and tells us, okay, if these are the fruit of God's Spirit, this means this is God's Spirit toward us. You know, He has a Spirit of, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is God's Spirit towards us all the time, no matter what is happening, God does not change. This is how he enters into correction with us. And then Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 is a list of Christ-like characteristics. And it says you need to put off those old things, the way you're living, put on Christ's characteristics. And so this is what Jesus is wearing. These are the clothes Jesus is wearing when he enters into a corrective conversation with us. Compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience, bearing with others, forgiveness, love. God is wearing all of these all the time, even when he's correcting us, even when we need to be held responsible for our actions. And then Ephesians 5.1 tells us, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so whatever attitudes, actions, and attributes that God has, he has those toward us before he asks us to begin embodying them for, towards somebody else. And so ask yourself, what is it like to be disciplined by someone like this? Someone who is gracious, who loves no matter what, who enjoys us, who is at peace with us, who is patient, kind, gentle, faithful, and self-controlled, who is compassionate, humble, and meek, who bears with us through all things, who forgives us. And we can think like, okay, I sinned and I messed up big time today or this week or whatever, and then it's like, oh God, what, what is he going to do with me? Well, what is it like to be disciplined by somebody who died for your sins? 
you know, somebody who laid, already has laid down their life for you, and now they say, hey, you know, there's this thing in your life that has gone wrong. We need to get you back on track. What is it like to be you know, corrected by someone who's laid down their life already for you, in love, given themselves in love? And God disciplines us and corrects us as a perfect father. And the second point in this passage, which is shorter, is that God disciplines and corrects us for our good. So the first point it makes that God disciplines as a perfect father, God corrects us for our good. So look back at verse 10. It says, For they, referring to our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness and to grow the peaceful fruit of righteousness in us. The ultimate good that God has as his goal in discipline is that we would more closely reflect what he is like as we're conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. That's what Romans 8, 28-29 says. God works all things together for our good, and that doesn't mean... Yay, like he's going to give me all the money I want, all the, you know, all the stuff I want. It says later, what is he working? What is the good that he's working all things uh, toward? It's toward being conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is the mold that God is molding us to and pushing us into. And this tells us that the goal of discipline is not punishment. Discipline does not equal punishment. The Greek word itself means the act of providing guidance for responsible living or to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. So when God disciplines us, he is not saying, okay, what's the appropriate punishment for this behavior? What's the appropriate punishment that's going to fit this crime that uh, you know, one of my children has committed? We, when we trust in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family as his beloved children. And this makes discipline relational, not judicial, not as a judge, as a father, it's as a relationship, not as a judge who's trying to figure out what's the appropriate punishment to fit this crime. And because of that relationship with God, God is also invested in our transformation. So discipline is both relational and transformational. That's how God is approaching it. It's not just, I'm trying to figure out what to do to you because you've been bad. And that means discipline is about character training, within the context of a relationship with God. It's always connected to relationship. And verse 11 uses uh, farming imagery, and we could ask Bob and Gene a lot about farming because they grew up around it. Uh, But when it uh, calls the result, it says the result of discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And a farmer tills the ground, sows the seed, and then waits and waits and waits. And waits. It takes it takes time, and so because uh, discipline, the result is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It tells us that discipline takes time. Transformation takes time. This is a process over time that God is doing in our lives. And sometimes we might become impatient, uh, be like, "Why can't I just grow out of this thing? Why do I keep doing this thing?" But God perhaps has something else. I mean, if you're noticing it, that's probably one of the things He's working on. I was just telling Katie. Last or last night when we were driving, that like I feel like I uh, God had worked on a bunch of things in my life for like three or four years. 
And all of a sudden, I was feeling like, wow, I think these are really starting to become part of me. And just in the last two or three weeks or a couple months, all of a sudden, he's been like waking me up to these other areas. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was a problem before. I wasn't even aware of that being a problem. And so I think God has this process he's doing with us. And verse 11 also points out that in the moment of discipline, it is painful rather than pleasant. So in the short term, uh, we probably wouldn't choose it. But then when we take the long-term view, we see the fruit that God wants to grow in us uh, through that discipline. And there's many things that I do with Hudson that, that he doesn't like and that he doesn't fully understand. And I should not expect him to. But I sometimes tell myself, I have to love him enough to allow myself to be temporarily disliked by him. And that it's hard sometimes. I have to love him enough to do what is painful and uncomfortable in the short term in order for him to grow into the person God has made him to be in the long term. And the truth is, God loves us enough to allow us to temporarily dislike him in the moment. God loves us enough to let us go through pain and hardship and challenges that we don't understand at the moment. Now, why would he do that? It's because he loves us enough to do what is for our good. God loves us enough to do for us the good that we would never choose ourselves. Because we would say, that's too hard, that's too painful, that's too uncomfortable. And God loves us enough to bring us good in our lives that we would never choose to give ourselves. And when it comes to our comfort or our character, God loves us enough to choose our character over our comfort. He loves us enough to take us through short-term hardship in order to grow in us long-term holiness. And if Hudson had his choice... Katie, we could test of what Hudson would choose every single moment or every single day. Uh, he would eat cookies every day, all day, whenever he wants. Uh, he would never go to bed. He would do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He would not wipe his butt. He would never change out of his diaper after a nap. And he watched Curious George all day. That is Hudson's plan for his life. That's like, if I had, you know, I could have the best life ever. This is what I would plan out for myself. Although I forgot one thing. He would probably be mowing the lawn with me the whole time we were doing that because that's what he loves to do. Every day he asks me, mow the lawn today? Well, we're going to have to, you know, I don't know, buddy. We'll have to check. And so, you know, because I told him, we have to check his feet long enough or it's dry. So he's always like, let's check it. Is it long enough? Every day, mowing the lawn. It's the best thing to do. Hudson's reality is Hudson's plan for his life isn't a very good one. And while uh, that is easy for us to see as adults, looking at him, we're kind of like, yeah, obviously that isn't how he should live his life. Um, we, it's less easy for us to look at our own lives and see, you know what, the plan I'm choosing for my life, by my choices, is not really a very good one. And God is trying to bring me down a path of actually having uh, a better life, which is, you know, has deep in character and deep love for him. And Starbucks here in town, they've had this... Uh, like garbage can for a while. It has two holes in it, and one says recycle, and the other says landfill. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting when I look at it. Like when I come with my garbage, we might not pay attention most of the time. I don't, you know, I don't really want to figure out where it goes. But then it's like, oh, I can either recycle this or contribute to a landfill. What do I? What will this? What do I want to contribute to with this choice? And I've always found it interesting in that there the options they're giving are making the consequences of my choice very obvious and very apparent. They're trying to get people to think about what do I do with my garbage? What, where do I want this to go in the end? It's kind of like showing this is the end result. If you put it in this hole, recycle. Put it in this hole, the end result is landfill. And if we could just see the long-term consequences and end results 
of the choices we're making every day and what they're doing to us and what they're doing to other people, we would probably live very differently. If we could see the relational damage our actions cause, we would probably think twice before you know, saying that snarky thing or you know, raising our voice or being harsh or like distancing from this, whatever, you know, whatever it is, if we could just see it. But, and the reality is God can see all of it. God knows the long-term effects of our choices, our behavior, and our way of living. And so he will choose short-term discomfort and pain and uh, challenges and hardship in order to give us long-term health and wholeness. And just think about how many painful, difficult, challenging things have you been through in life, and now you can look back on them and say, you know what, that was actually for my good. You know what, I'm a lot better off after that. You know, that, that did something in me. That changed something for me that nothing else would have gotten brought that result in my life. And this is where uh, we see that uh, discipline connects with this previous message we did, which is you're called and capable. Because if you think about like um, physical rehab, when you have like a broken leg, you forget how to walk, you have an arm, it's like, okay, that part of me is supposed to have this capability to move or to let me stand on it or whatever. And we have to go through rehab to kind of rehabilitate or you know, bring functionality back to that part of our body, to bring that capability back that we lost. And it's super painful in the moment. But, and the, how it connects with God's discipline is that we're called to love God and to love others, and we've been made capable of doing so. But we've misused those capabilities to love ourselves rather than loving other people and loving God. We use God's capabilities He's given us to just love ourselves instead of pointing it outward. And so now we need to go through this rehab to restore proper functionality to those parts of us that are supposed to be used to love other people. And that's painful while you're going through it. And so in light of this, how should we receive God's discipline and correction? Well, when we lose sight of the who and the why behind discipline, we will not respond to it rightly. When we know the who and the why behind discipline, we can respond to discipline and correction as coming from a loving father, a perfect father, and that is for our good making us more like Jesus. We can count it, as James 1 says, we can count it all joy when trials, hardships, sufferings, and pain enter our lives because we know what God is doing through it. I mean, can you imagine what attitude would change in our lives if every difficult thing, every relational difficulty or just other difficulties in life, if we were like, wow, God, I'm just going to count this all joy because I know what you're doing in me through this. That would totally change our attitude, because the times we find it most hard to be happy and joyful and upbeat is when something difficult is happening to us, or when someone's hurting us. And what if it was like, actually in that moment, I'm still going to be joyful because this hurts, but I also know what God is doing through this. And people, it's called joy, not, uh, not kind of like a normal emotion. It's actually an emotion that can be experienced alongside all of other emotions. It's not either joy or anger, either joy or sadness. And learning to feel I mean, Paul says, I can't remember, it's in Corinthians, you know, he says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Wait a second. That seems like oxymoron. Is that what you call it? An oxymoron? It seems like mutually exclusive. And it's like, well, how can we be angry yet always rejoicing? How can we be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? How can we be scared yet always rejoicing? And how can those two things be together at the same time? And so if this is the kind of correction we receive from God, how ought we to give correction out to others? Many times, God's correction 
and discipline comes through other people. It can be through the events of our life, but often God, um, I like to think uh, that of it like this, God's people are God's delivery system for his care. How does God get discipline? How does he get care into your life? Well, his people, us, are his delivery system for his care uh, to one another. And so how do we reflect what God, what God is like when we correct others by doing it in a, both a relational and transformational way? And so I just have two items. One is put Christ's character on. Put Christ's character on. I just love the, that image of like, okay, I'm heading into this situation, and am I wearing the proper attire for it? Am I wearing the proper clothes? I mean, if you go to a wedding... It's like, okay, I'm, you know, we're going to change into our clothes, make sure we look the proper part. I'm still figuring out what you're supposed to wear at weddings in Illinois. It's very different in Wisconsin, but I've either been underdressed or overdressed. I don't know. I, th- I don't know if I've ever hit it right on the, the money. But before working out, we also put on workout clothes. It's not like I'm going to go work out like this, usually as soon as I get home. I actually put on certain clothes to eat because I tend to drop things on myself. Katie makes fun of me all the time. So this is not my proper attire for eating. I'm going to go home, I usually change, and then I eat. So we have to wear the proper attire, appropriate clothing for the occasion. And similarly, before we have a a corrective conversation with someone, we need to take off the clothing we need to take off that isn't right for the conversation. We need to put on the proper attire for that conversation. We need to wear the same characteristics that God wears with us. And we just look through you know, these first three messages. Before we get to be responsible for your actions, we want to say you're safe with me, you're loved no matter what, you're called and capable. I'm also going to hold you responsible for your actions. And, and so, to communicate you're safe with me, I've got the questions here if you want to write them down. These are just kind of the simple ways to, to do this. So, if you want to communicate you're safe with me, we need to ask, what's going on in me? What's going on in me? And this is where we have self-reflection. We start by first taking the log out of our own eye before going to take the speck out of someone else's. We consider, how have I contributed to this situation? And we unload the baggage that we unintentionally bring in that causes us to overreact to what people have done because they've bumped up against an old wound from our past and they don't know it. It's like, um, it's like that action actually wasn't a big deal, but it was a big deal to me. Why was that such a big deal to me? If we think about It was such a small thing they did. Why did I react so big? And we unintentionally carry baggage in, and it intensifies our reactions. We receive God's grace for us so we can pass it on to the other person. And this step of asking, what's going on in me, gets us out of self-righteousness. And instead of saying, like, I've been wronged here, and I haven't done anything wrong, and I need to tell them what they've done. It gets us out of self-righteousness and moves us into humility. And humility softens, but pride hardens. Healthy correction always starts with ourselves. Healthy correction always starts with we take responsibility for our actions. That's what this is. We take responsibility for our actions before we ask somebody else to take responsibility for theirs. We, we repent first before asking them to. And you may have already done or said something that you shouldn't have, have or maybe said it in the wrong way. And Katie and I, through this, the organization that does these four messages, Connected Families, they encourage uh, parents and kids to have uh, redos or do-overs. I always say it wrong. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm really, Hudson really likes them and I'm really enjoying them because I'll like do something. It just happened today. He was uh, pushing these chairs and I wanted him to stop pushing it. So I kind of grabbed him. He was, I was like, Hudson, Hudson, stop doing that. And I kind of, and he wasn't stopping so I pulled on his shirt to get close to me to keep get him away from the chair. And he says, 
you pulled me. And he's, he's like, hey, he's you know, kind of thinking, that wasn't very nice. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry, buddy. I shouldn't have done that. Can I have a redo? And he says, yes. And so then he goes and stands back by the chairs. And I say, Hudson? Yeah, yeah. He's always way more compliant than second with the redo. And he's, he goes, yeah. And I'm like, can you not push those chairs? I like to keep them in a row. And he goes, okay. And I mean, we just found this so powerful. And you can do this for a little relationship. And you, you like say something and you're like, maybe you see the look on the person's face kind of drop, you see them reacting, you're like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have said it like that, will you forgive me, could I, could I redo that? Oh, you know, it's kind of, we're teaching people, and you know, kids, and other people in our lives, and we're saying, I make mistakes, and I'm not just going to stick to what my action was, I can recognize it was wrong, and let me try to just redo it in this moment, it's very powerful. And so we need to get to this place where we are for the person, not against them. That's what it means to be communicate you are safe with me. To communicate your love no matter what, ask, what's going on in them? What is it like to be them right now? What are they seeing and experiencing from their perspective and their side of things? And unconditional love is expressed with unconditional care for them and unconditional affection for them. And so keep the relationship bigger than the problem or pain. Thirdly, to communicate your calling capable, ask, okay, what good do I see in them? This is about, okay, they've been made capable of loving other people, and they have strengths and skills and talents that they're using in this moment in the wrong way, but I can still affirm those things. And what can you affirm? What good desires and attention, intentions do you see? What strengths, talents, gifts, and skills do you see at work in them? And I would love to go through this tool that Katie and I were taught um, in marriage counseling, uh, called the dialogue wheel. Actually, Heather, I, I don't know if you remember, but we walked through it one time, um, and it starts off with you, it's called start softly. And so you first say, "I own, I own that I assumed things I shouldn't have. I own that I I yelled. I own that I got upset." And then you affirm, and I want to affirm uh, this about you. It's called starting softly to begin a conversation to resolve conflict. And if you've answered these questions that you see on the board. Uh, you'll go into this conversation uh, confessing, apologizing, empathizing, enjoying, affirming, encouraging, and building up. You'll be humble, slow, patient, thankful, gentle, understanding, compassionate, sympathetic, affectionate, attentive, and curious. And you won't be prideful, criticizing, condemning, finger-pointing, tearing down, ungrateful, big, loud, fast, blind to your own faults, defensive, blaming and justifying. Let's consider this person you're thinking about in your life that I want more connection with, but I'm like, they've done so many things, how am I ever supposed to connect with them? They've done so many things wrong. So what would it change to go into a conversation like that? What difference would that make? Instead of seeing every wrong action as something to correct, we need to start seeing it as an opportunity to connect. And you know, if you haven't answered these questions, before you're having a corrective conversation, you're probably going into it kind of an enemy mode, which is you're focused uh, on the pain or the problem and not on the person. You're, you're focused on giving correction. And if you're against them in enemy mode, then they're going to see you as an enemy and they're going to fight or flight response. They're going to withdraw or attack. And if they're in that mode, you can't actually get real change in, their, in them. They might change out of fear, but they're not actually changing. And so consider, think about this. Many times, one parent is the rule enforcer, and the other parent is a little more lenient. I don't know, that's maybe a stereotype, but that tends to be um, what it's like. And the, and the kids, 
they don't act up for the rule enforcer. They know what will happen if they do, and they don't want that to happen. But then they'll misbehave when they're with the more lenient parent because they know they can get away with it. And if the lenient parent is you know, feeling like, I, this is, I'm just having so much trouble here, I really want them to do this, you might hear the threat, do you want me to tell your father about this? Or just wait till your mother gets home. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this fear. And like, oh, please, please don't do that. And maybe I'm begging, you know, don't do that. And all of a sudden, they get, all of a sudden they're behaving and getting, you know, compliance. Suddenly start behaving. And so are these kids being transformed? In one situation, they look like obedient children. Another situation, they look like disobedient children. So which are they? Are they obedient or disobedient? The issue that this makes apparent is that these kids have not been changed at the core of who they are. Their behavior has been changed, and they're changing their behavior based on when it's most good to them. When I'm with the rule enforcer parent, it benefits me to do what they say. When I'm with the lenient parent, well, it benefits me to do what I want because there's not going to be really anything that comes out of it. And so they'll play the part of an obedient or righteous person when it helps them, but with them with another person, they're totally different. In James uh, 1.19-20 tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so if kids or anybody is obeying out of, or you know, complying out of fear instead of out of love, that's not producing the righteousness of God. Connection is what truly transforms, not correction. So our goal needs to be connection, not correction. So first we need to put on Christ's character. Second, we need to let go you need to be okay with not getting the results that you want. Because this isn't a formula for getting people to do what you want. That's not what it is. The goal is to be relational, to have things worked out in our life that we're not bringing more mess into it. And all we can do is our part and do what we can bring to the table. And now, maybe you're asking, okay, well, are you saying there's no consequences for people's actions? Like, Okay, they just hurt me over and over again, and then you just still want to be safe to love them, to call them capable, and they might not even you know change. Like, how is that fair? Like, they, I don't want them off the hook. I want them to pay for this. They need to know how much they hurt me. They need to you know get you know we need to get even with them in some way. Like, this is just isn't right, and that's a good sense you're having. That's a, a your conscience. That's your sense of justice saying somebody needs to pay for this. And the reality is, what I find helpful is to say either. Before God, either they're going to pay for it or Jesus already has because they've trusted in him. And so it's not your job to get them to pay for this, to get even. But you might also be wondering, okay, but uh, what if they don't change? Do I need to keep trusting and opening myself to them? I want to introduce you to an important concept called boundaries. And imagine you have a house. Um, I was thinking I was going to draw my house in here, but I'll take it and recreate it. So you have a house... And you enter it, and you might have a little, let's call this the porch, this is your porch, this is your door, front door, I don't know how to draw stuff, foyer, and then living room, living room, kitchen, uh, you know, you're probably looking at this floor plan and being like, I don't know, what that house. Uh, and then let's imagine bedroom. Bedroom, okay, so in a house, people are allowed into certain rooms of your house. And the deeper you go into your home, the more personal and intimate it gets. And so the, because of that, the deeper you go into your home, the, more, the fewer people that are going to be in those places in your home. Some people belong in the porch, like the Amazon delivery guy. You don't say, come on in, sit on the couch for a bit. I've got some tea and crumpets or whatever. 
whatever you make. Um, some people are foyer people. It's like you're going to talk to them in the foyer, maybe a neighbor. Hey, it's cold. Why don't you step in here? You're going to talk to them in the foyer, but that's where they belong. Some people are like, I'm on. You can come in and let's just sit down and sit on the couch. I'll, you know, do you want anything to drink? I'll grab you something to drink. And then we'll sit down, living room conversation. And then some people, they can just come in. They can knock and kind of come right in. And you don't think it's weird if they go in your pantry and make something. Because it's like, yeah, you, know, you, you are trustworthy here. You, this whole home is opened up to you. Some people, uh, very, very few people are allowed in your bedroom. Uh, it can often be one of the doors that's closed when you're giving a tour of your house. It's like, no one's going in there. They don't need to see it. It's messy. But then even if your bedroom, people you'll let in there, your closet... That's where you shove all the stuff and junk to make your bedroom, perhaps the rest of the house, look clean, right? So very few people get to see inside the closet. And, but now, apply this to relationships. Most people are entryway people. This is, most people in your life, they're basically on the porch. You know, you're not, letting, you're not let, opening up your life, your inner, your inner person up to them. Some people are foyer people. We're friendly. We're not going too deep. It's not too comfortable. Some people are living room people. Yeah. We're going to sit down, we're going to have living room level conversations, there's more I'm sharing, I'm you know, opening up more. Some people, you're like, you know, I trust you, you can go in my house and just open the door and come in and uh, you can make yourself a sandwich if you want, or get a cookie like Josue likes. Uh, you can also, but then some people, very few people, are going to be allowed into the most personal and intimate space in your house, your bedroom. You're looking like, you know, you've got to be really trusted to come in here. And then even fewer people you're going to let into the closet emotionally, the closet where you put all your mess and all your junk to make the rest of the house look more presentable to people. And so what you need to decide is where should this person be? Perhaps their actions uh, have made you aware they should have less access to my inner being. I should give less of myself to them. I thought they were a living room person. It's turning out they're more of a foyer or porch person. They've done things that have broken trust. I don't think I can trust them with kind of a deep vulnerable things of myself. And maybe you, you start off, you know, you're starting off with people and you're like, you know what, I can let them in a little deeper. They're trustworthy. They've shown themselves to, you know, treat me right. And so communicating, uh, or keeping the relationship bigger than the problem or pain doesn't mean you let every single person into every room in your house. Forgiveness means giving up the right to get even. But that doesn't mean trust hasn't been broken. And you aren't going to treat them like an enemy, but you're going to limit how much of you they get. And there's natural impact to people's actions. Forgiveness means you're not getting even. doesn't mean there aren't consequences to what they did. And so without boundaries, it's like your house doesn't have doors on it. People, whether they're trustworthy or not, can just come in everywhere and they're just you know, violating all the you know, parts. And it's like, I just keep getting hurt. Why do I keep getting hurt? And it's realizing, okay, this is a living room person. Keep them there. Don't take them into the bedroom uh, emotionally. And we even see Jesus did not trust himself to all people. John 2 says, John 2, 22-25, he says he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. So Jesus had this boundary. He's like, I'm not going to completely open up and do everything that I would do with you know, my closest disciples because I know what's in them. And just as we think about ourselves as a church, we're a people who are being formed by God into who he wants us to be. And he uses us in each other's lives and in other people's lives. And the reality is the church ought to be the safest place in the world to not have it all together, to fail, to mess up, to continue to do the wrong thing over and over again. The church ought to be the safest place in the world 
for sinners, for people who don't have their lives together. As we communicate these messages, let's pray. God, would you make us into safe people? Would you make us into people who love no matter what? Even if someone appears to be our enemy, would you make us people who love our enemies? Would you allow us to see every single person we interact with as made in your image and likeness, as wonderfully and awesomely made by you? And God, would you also give us the courage and the compassion to ask people to make their wrongs right, to right what they've made wrong. Would you help us to hold people responsible for their actions in a way that reflects you? In your son's name we pray. Amen.